The choruses, the songs we have sung today have really been wonderful and presented the focus that we need every Sunday morning, the focus on God's glory and greatness. The song that Shelley and Angela sang is certainly a beautiful song reminding us of what our response to God ought to be and what ought to be taking place in our hearts as we respond to God in that way. Does God care how we perceive him and how we worship him? Or will any understanding of God suffice? And will any approach to God meet with his approval? The answer to the first question is yes, God cares immensely how he is perceived. And the answer to the second question is no. Any attitude or approach to God in worship will not do. We are commanded in the Bible to worship God in spirit and in truth. In spirit means from the heart, with true devotion. In truth means from the head, in accordance with God's self-revelation in Scripture. I believe such worship is rare, but when it's real, it is life-transforming. When we worship God as we should, we will not remain the same. We will be changed. All through the Old Testament, we see God judging Israel because of idolatry. They worship false gods. Uh, they even worship the true God in wrong ways. And Malachi and many other prophets, many other parts of the Old Testament, address this issue. Malachi, or if you are Italian, Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi prophesied somewhere between 450 and 430 B.C. He ministered about the same time as Nehemiah, 75 to 100 years after Haggai and Zechariah. Following Malachi, the voice of prophecy was silenced in Israel for 400 years until we come to John the Baptist and the New Testament. The message of Malachi is so uh, relevant because the issues that Malachi is addressing, I think, need to be addressed in our own time. Thousands had returned, tens of thousands of Israelites had returned from captivity in Babylon, which lasted 70 years, back to Jerusalem. The temple had been rebuilt, worship had been resumed, but all was not well. The people were soon repeating the same sins that led them into captivity in the first place. Skeptical of God's love, careless in worship, indifferent to truth, disobedient to the covenant, faithless in their marriages, materialistic in their lifestyles, and stingy in their giving. And yet the people thought they could worship God with all this going on. It was presumptuous, to say the least. We will begin by taking a quick tour through Malachi, picking up on one word that demonstrates the, the pride and presumption of the people, and that word is the word how. The word how. It's found several times. And in every instance, it exposes a state of mind that challenges God. God makes an assessment of their spiritual condition. And they have the audacity to say, how is that so? What do you mean by that? 
Give account of yourself, God. Why are you making that accusation? And following this quick overview, I want us to spend some time in Malachi chapter 1. So let's look at the first how. It's in Malachi chapter 1 and verse 2. God declares, I have loved you, says the Lord, and you say, how have you loved us? I have loved you, says the Lord. And their complaint is, well, how have you loved us? Perhaps they felt that God had not treated them properly over the years. Perhaps they thought God was too harsh on them. Perhaps they are recalling how they had suffered in many ways over their history. And so they say, God, you don't love us as you should, and you don't love us in the way we think you should love us. How have you loved us? Then in chapter 1 and verse 6, a son honors his father, a servant his master. Then if I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts. O priest, you have despised my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? You don't respect me, you don't honor me, says God. You despise my name, and they say, we don't get it. How have we done that? And of course, the kind of sacrifices they were presenting to God proved that they did not hold them in high esteem. Then verses 7 and 8, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? That you say, the table of the Lord is to be, to be despised, but when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? And then he says, why not offer this to your governor? You wouldn't give this stuff to a human leader, but you're giving it to me. So basically, their attitude was this. We don't need this animal. It's sickly. It's it's decrepit, it's no good to us, let's give it to God. Let's present that in sacrifice to God. Now they knew they were to bring the best, the very best of the flock and the first fruits of their harvest. And you say, well, how does that apply to us? Because we don't offer animals. Well, may I be so bold as to say, if we give God the leftovers of our incomes, are we not? despising God? Are we not failing to give him our very best? And then in chapter 2, verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? Then he explains in that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Where is the God of justice? They were accusing God of not making a distinction between good and evil. And so, in their minds, God was not a just God. That's a very common attitude in our day, because evil and suffering exist. God is accused of being unjust. If God is good, why is there pain and suffering? If God is powerful, why doesn't he do something about it? I'm sure that all of us have entertained those thoughts. Right now, one of the books I'm reading is, If God, if God is Good, 
written by Randy Alcorn, and he looked at the whole issue of evil and suffering. Then chapter 3 and verse 7. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you. But you say, how shall we return? The same challenge of God is, was ushered 300 years previously by, by Hosea, the prophet. Hosea 14.1, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Well, the people did not return 300 years before that, and they do not return now when Malachi talks. It's not that they lack an understanding of what they need to do. They need to repent of their sins and return to the Lord. That's not the issue. In fact, the issue is far deeper than that. They don't think they have to return. They don't see a problem in their lives. Return? Why? We haven't left you, God. We're offering the sacrifice to you. Look look back in chapter 2, verse 13. This is another thing which you discover. The altar of the Lord, uh, another thing you do, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears. So there's emotion in their worship, okay? With weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from you. Yet you say, for what reason? God, we are bringing the sacrifices. Why are you ticked with us? Why are you upset with us? God, the problem's yours. It's not ours. Well, he goes on to answer that question. The reason is because they were not being faithful to the wives of their youth. They were getting divorced for any and every reason. And God says, I hate divorce. Malachi 3 and verse 16. You know, we we are in a sad state spiritually. If God says, return, and we say, why? I haven't left. I'm close to you. I'm near to you. I'm coming to church. Why do I need to repent and return? Then in chapter 3 and verse 8, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. And you say, How have we robbed you? Robbed you, God? What are you talking about? Don't throw wild charges at us, God. Be specific. Tell us, God, how we have robbed you. Well, God says, You want specific? I give you a specific. In tithes and offerings. They were not giving to the Lord the way they should. They were being quite materialistic and providing for themselves and not giving to God. And God says, you are robbing me. Then in chapter 3 and verse 13, your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his charge, that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? They're just giving up. They're saying, we're doing what we think we ought to be doing, and God is not approving of our sacrifices. And so, what's the profit in worshiping God? He's not answering our prayers. He's not responding as we want him to. 
So they say, what have we spoken against you? Well, they were questioning his love, despising his name, defiling his sacrifices, attacking his justice, questioning his commands, and withholding his tithes, to name a few things. And they don't see it. They thought they were on good terms with God. Reminds me of what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power. Well, let's look to a proper attitude toward worship. And we want to go back to Malachi chapter 1. A proper attitude toward worship means rejoicing in the wonder of sovereign election. The word Malachi means my messenger. And the word, the chapter begins in the New American Standard, the oracle of the word of the Lord. Oracle could be translating, translated the burden, the burden of the word of the Lord. Why this designation for what Malachi is saying? Well, the word of the Lord is never light and trifling and unimportant. It is weighty and heavy and serious. It is thick and rich with truth. It is substantial as opposed to light and frothy and needs to be received received with sincerity and humility and heeded. And even the word of the Lord, when the God brings good news to people, it's often rejected and met with indifference and opposition. That's why Isaiah asked the question, who has believed our message? In our day, there are some people, and I hope it doesn't apply to any of us here, but there are some people who attend church not to hear truth, but to truth that makes them tremble, but to hear motivational talks that make them feel good about themselves. Isaiah 66 verse 2 says this, To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite in spirit. Now, how does the one who is humble and contrite in spirit respond to truth and who trembles, who trembles at my word? Do we tremble in awe and adoration and godly fear? when we read the Word of God, when we hear the Word of God? Are we humbled and broken as the Spirit takes that Word and applies it to our hearts? Even when we think of the love and mercy and grace of God, we say, why should we tremble at that? Because it's so amazing. We should be shocked at the amazement of God's love for us. Piper writes, the truth of sovereign electing love is designed for the comfort and encouragement of the mature and also designed to shock the presumption and the flippancy of careless Christians. Christians who grasp, whose grasp of the love of God is so shallow that it never makes them tremble, but instead makes them careless and casual and even presumptuous in his presence. God loves me. Sure he does. He ought to. I deserve it. Oh boy. Don't think in those terms. So God declares, I've loved you, to which they should have responded, yes, God, and your love is so so amazing, so undeserved. It overwhelms us that you love us. Thank you, God, for loving us. They should have responded that way, but they didn't. How have you loved us? They're skeptical. They're arrogant. And listen carefully to God's answer. Because it's one which is seldom heard in our day. 
Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob and hated Esau. And we say, what kind of an answer is that? What does God mean? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? They say, well, of course Esau was Jacob's brother. We know that. But by answering the question, we have the essence to sovereign love. Esau was Jacob's brother, his twin brother, in fact. And Esau was born first to Rebekah. But Jacob was the chosen one. The younger was chosen to receive the blessings of the covenant. So what is God's point? God's point is this. I have loved you with a sovereign love, with an electing love, with an unconditional love. That is how I have loved you. I chose Jacob, and you are descendants of Jacob, and not Esau. But I could have chosen Esau by the culture, by the rules of your culture. I should have chosen Esau. I didn't. I chose Jacob and his offspring. Reminds us of what Paul says in Romans chapter 9 when he's trying to get across the freedom of God to do what he wants to do. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and whom I will harden, I will harden. Well, you say, God, you can't do that. And God says, oh, yes, I can because I'm God. So Romans 9 verse 10 there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice or to his election would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, I said to her, the older will serve the younger. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Because God had a purpose in electing Jacob, he chose Jacob. End of story. <laughs> and God has the right to do that because he is sovereign. He is God. When we look at someone living in, in sin and, and rebellion and away from the Lord... Does the thought ever cross your mind? God chose me because I'm better than they are. God chose me because I'm not that bad. God chose me because I have virtue in me and they don't. That, folks, is not the truth. The difference between you and I and the worst sinner we can imagine is minuscule. And if you are a believer today, you were chosen in eternity past by God before you were born or had done anything good or evil. That's what Romans 9 says about Jacob and Esau. And the faith we have in Christ is due wholly and completely to the sovereign, gracious working of God in our lives. The fact that we are numbered among the elect has its root in God's good pleasure. God's will, not ours. So be amazed and treble in wonder at the love of God for you. Now, some people have trouble with this next phrase. Yet I have loved Jacob, and I have hated Esau. And we say, well, God, you can't do that. 
What does he mean by that? Well, look at verse 3. I have hated Esau and have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, and Edom is the nation that came from Esau, though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. The men will call them the wicked, the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Four aspects of God's hatred for Esau. He opposed their prosperity and brought their land into desolation. He continues to oppose them. They will say, we will resist this. We will build up. And God said, okay, go ahead. But I will tear down. They'll be given to wickedness. Men will call them the wicked camp. See, God's doing nothing unfair here. When God does not bless certain people or bypasses certain people in his sovereign, mysterious reasons for choosing, uh, it's not because these people are innocent and want to be saved but can't be saved. They're guilty, as you and I are guilty. So he is righteous to judge Esau because Esau was wicked. Edom was wicked. And God will be angry with them forever. Now why does Malachi open this way? That we might fear God and tremble with joy at his goodness. He speaks of his unconditional sovereign election so that the nerve of pride is severed in our hearts. And we say that 100% of our salvation is because of God's gracious working. Zero percent because of us. To make us tremble with tears of joy that we belong to God. There is forgiveness with you that you may, that I may be feared, that you may be feared, the psalmist says in Psalm 130 verse 4. So be amazed by grace. Be overwhelmed with God. Tremble at his goodness to you. Be awestruck by that goodness. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I'm a believer and for no other reason. And by the grace of God, if there's any virtue in me, it's not because I have worked hard to make it happen. It's because I have surrendered to God by his grace and his Holy Spirit is working within me. That we may fear God and tremble with joy at his goodness, that we may know that God reigns over the whole earth. Notice verse 5. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. It's a very, very important part of what it means to be loved by God is to possess the conviction that he is a great and mighty God and reigns over the whole earth. Not one square inch of terra firma is not under the sovereign control of God. Even Haiti, as devastating, as heartbreaking, as that is, as we watch the images on television, this did not happen by accident. It was, I mean, God is to control the movements of the plates in the earth that cause earth, earthquakes. I do not want to imagine or predict why this happened. It happened, and we need to reach out and help and pray. But you say, but some say, well, God wasn't in control. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. And when devastation and disaster hits our lives, God is still in control. Rejoice in the wonder of sovereign election and respond with reference 
toward God. Malachi has a stern warning for the priests who were supposed to be guiding the people in the proper worship of God, but were not. Notice verse 8. When you present the blind to sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? If you're going to give it to God, give it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? The answer is no, he wouldn't. Or would, you receive, would he receive you um, kindly? So here we have the priest leading the people in disgraceful worship. And the priests should have known better, and they did know better. What is the origin, uh, the origin of careless worship? It is failure to see the greatness of God's sovereign love. Again, I repeat what I've just said, that an overwhelming sense of mercy, the mercy of God in choosing us, is at the heart of proper worship. Remind yourself of this. Remind yourself of your sinfulness and be amazed by grace and you will worship properly. Remind yourself of Calvary and the wrath of God for your sin being poured out on Jesus and you will worship properly. You'll become humble and grateful and forgiving. Your worship, your service, your giving will reach new heights when we have our minds filled with this great truth of the sovereign, unconditional election of God, of us by God. So a failure to see the greatness of God's sovereign love and failing to see the greatness of God's majestic fatherhood. Verse 6, a son honors his father, a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my respect? He was not receiving the respect and honor that he should have from, from the people. Now how do these failures, failure to see the greatness of God's sovereign love and failure to see the greatness of God's majestic fatherhood, how, they, how do they lead to carelessness in worship or presumption in worship? Well, it makes us bored with God and excited about the world. Listen to this. If you don't see, and Piper is saying this, if you don't see the greatness of God, then all the things that money can buy become very exciting. If you can't see the sun, you'll be impressed with a, with a street light. I love that analogy. If you can't see the sun, you'll be impressed by a street light. When we fail to see and savor the greatness of God revealed in Scripture, we may not stop being religious because these people were very religious, but the world has a grip on our hearts. And we are captivated by the glitz and glamour of the world and pursue the temporal, the worldly, and material things. Notice what he says down in verse 13 of chapter 1. You say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff it, that is, at the offering. They were bored with the whole deal of worshiping God. What a wearisome thing worship is. Oh, the things of the world are much more exciting than the things of God. 
This is the sort of attitude that develops when we are blind to God's majestic greatness. We crave worldly things. We try to quench our thirst at the empty fountains of the world. The heart is always restless. The heart always must have a treasure. We all have a treasure. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is a spiritual law of life. My heart will follow my treasure. My time, my income, my efforts, my thinking, my pursuits, my, my energy will follow my treasure. And Christ says in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and love and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Well, I can try. No, you will serve wealth then. You cannot serve God and wealth. Impossible. So let me define careless worship. It is cool professionalism. Methods take priority over the message. Technique trumps truth. And performance wins out over prayer and preaching. Cool professionalism. Thoughtless emotionalism. Some people believe that the more emotion in the religious service, the more worship is present. Not so at all. People go to some services for the experience of the emotion of the event, not to know about God and worship him and obey him. Will there be true motion and true worship? Absolutely. We will feel deeply when we sing the songs we sang, when we hear the word of God, it will affect us right here. Not just here, but right here. But we have to be thinkers. We have to have our emotions respond to truth, not just to an atmosphere. And deadly orthodoxy or stale ritualism. Worship can become routine and rote. Same old, same old. Each Sunday, business as usual. And so we need to prepare our hearts during the week that we come here, we are ready to receive through the singing and through the preaching and through the fellowship. What about the nature of true worship? True worship involves a conviction about the greatness of God. And we will treasure God above prosperity and pursuits and pleasures. Thoughts of God excite us, never bore us. The nature of true worship means that we acknowledge the character of God. Nine times, uh, eight times in nine verses, 24 times in the book of Malachi, 24 times, the name of God is the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. Why is this title so, so significant? And what does it mean? What does it teach us about the nature of God? Well, host means great numbers of armies or angels or, or stars. And Malachi wants the people not to have small views of God, but huge, large, magnificent views of God. This God we worship is the Lord of hosts. Listen to this. He can wield any and all armies on the earth to accomplish his purposes among the nations, whether they know it or not. He has myriads of unstoppable angels who do his bidding flawlessly and never fail in their errands. 
He has appointed every star in the universe its position. He holds them in place, a trillion, trillion of them, and he calls them all by name. He is the Lord of hosts. This is the God we worship, not some small local deity. And such a majestic God, an awesome God, demands the very best we have, as the girl sang earlier on. Then he sh- proper worship involves showing the, the sufficiency of God. God doesn't need us. We need him. He isn't dependent upon us for anything. We are dependent upon him for everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand. What can we give to God that he doesn't already own? Nothing. So Paul says in Acts 17, 25, he is not stirred by human hands as though he needed anything, for he himself gives all men life and breath and everything. And apparently these people thought that they were giving God something. They were adding to him. They were making him better than he was by offering him sacrifices. And they imagined that God was well pleased. But notice what the prophet says, or God says to the prophet, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. In other words, (laughs) if this is the way you're going to worship me, shut the temple doors. Close it all down. Close it all down. We worship the Lord of hosts. And let's have this understanding of God as we come to worship him on Sundays. And then honoring God's name. Proper worship involves honoring God's name. From the rising of the sun, verse 11, into its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name. And a grain offering that is pure, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. This is one of the most marvelous and stupendous and exciting promises in the Bible. My name will be honored throughout the entire universe, God says. So Malachi reminds the priests and the people that the name they dishonor by bringing sick sick sheep and mangy goats, the name they despise through presumptuous worship, will one day, is one day destined to be reverenced and held in the highest esteem by the entire universe. And that God demands and deserves the very best we can give him. So I close with these thoughts. Proper worship, worship that flow, is worship that flows from the heart and is amazed by sovereign election. It is worship where the mind is filled with God-exalting thoughts. He is the Lord of hosts. And that kind of worship will change us from being selfish to practicing self-denial, from grumbling about life to being grateful to God, from apathy and indifference to a passion for the glory of God, from substandard giving to generous, joyful giving, from being filled with despair to being filled with hope, from inner uh, um, turmoil to inner peace, and from lethargy about ministry and service to active involvement in ministry. 
Worship matters. How we perceive God matters. How we come to God, especially in our hearts and minds, matters. And we only become true worshipers through Jesus Christ. We can only come to the Father through the Son. He is the mediator between God and man. So if you want to become a worshiper, it's not a matter of joining this church or that church. It's a matter of coming to the cross as a sinner and repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus alone to save you from those sins and giving your whole life, your whole heart to the Lord. Then the work of his spirit begins within you and transform you. And you will see God for who he is and you will be awestruck by this God. And you will want to serve and give your best to this God. Let's worship God in this church in spirit and in truth. Let us pray. Father, I must confess personally that sometimes I'm lackadaisical when I come before you. It can become routine and ho-hum and same old, same old. Forgive me, God, when that's my attitude. You are so great. You are so awesome. You are so mighty. You are so gracious. In a way that I do not understand, you have chosen us, many of us here, hopefully all of us here, to be your children. Do we deserve it? Absolutely not. So God, let us see that love and acknowledge it. And may we go from this place saying, God, Lord of hosts, sovereign ruler of the universe, reign in this heart and change this heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.